You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website, wmbc.church. Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Haggai, one of the most popular of all 66 books of the Bible, one that I'm sure that everyone is well familiar with. Um, and we are halfway through our series, um, so we are on the, 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 the back, we, we, this is, the, this is um, the third to the last of our sermons in Haggai, um, so this is a, a quick series to start the year off. Um, so we will be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And so, um, what we've seen so far in the, in the book of Haggai is we've seen um, the context of Haggai, right? That this, is, um, this, is, this, takes, this was, uh, takes place after um, the, the Babylonian captivity, the, the Babylonian exile, where, um, where, where the people of Judah, um, the, the, the Israelites of the southern kingdom, um, had been captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies where Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been completely annihilated, and there was a mass deportation of all the people of Judah into, um, into the, 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 the cities of Babylon. And so then after, after several decades of being in captivity, just as the Lord promised, um, a new new king and a new empire usurped the, the, uh, the Babylonians. The Persian Empire conquered Babylonia under King Cyrus. And when King Cyrus took command over this massive Persian Empire, he issued an edict that the people of Judah would return to Jerusalem and that they had permission to rebuild, not only permission, but they had a command to rebuild the temple, the house of the Lord. And so we saw in that first week, in the book of Ezra, that the people returned back to Jerusalem. They returned back to the land surrounding Jerusalem, and they did. They immediately started obeying the Lord. They started worshiping and observing the feasts and festivals that, got, that Moses had commanded them to do, and they rebuilt the altar so that they could make sacrifices before the Lord, and they even laid the foundation of the temple. But then... When they started meeting the opposition of the other people that had been living in that land and other people that didn't want them to worship exclusively God, but instead they wanted the worship of God to be a part of their worship of all the other gods, whenever those people started harassing them and started making it difficult for them to build the temple, they stopped. And they stopped for 15 years. And so then, after Cyrus died, and after two more kings passed, in the second year of the new king of Persia, Darius, Haggai and another prophet named Zechariah, who also takes place at this same time, they step up and they declare a word from the Lord that it is time to build the house. And so that's what we saw in the first chapter of Haggai. We saw that the, the main message of the book of Haggai is found in Haggai Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And it is God telling the people, why are you busying yourselves with your own houses while my house lies in ruins, right? And one of the things that we've repeated these last couple of weeks is that it's not that God was anti-building our own homes. But instead, Haggai, the Lord through Haggai, was 
calling the people to consider where their priorities were lying. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were building their houses that was wrong. It was the fact that they had neglected building the house of God, the temple, in order to busy themselves with their own houses. And so it was a, it was a sin of, 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 of poor prioritization. It was not a sin of that they were building their own homes, but instead that they were neglecting the house of God. And then what we saw last week as we concluded chapter 1 is we saw a very interesting twist for the Bible in which we're so used to people being disobedient and God having to punish his people in order to bring them to repentance is that we saw that the people responded in obedience. They got to work. God said, start building my house. And so that's exactly what they did. They said that they began to fear the Lord instead of having the fear of the peoples that were around them and they got to work on the house of God. And so, what else is there to say about this people and this people that are supposed to be building the house of God, that are supposed to be seeking God's kingdom before all things? Well, Chapter 2 will be divided into three messages. There's three distinct messages in chapter 2. And and as I said last week, in a way, all three of these messages are really just building upon and encouraging the people of Judah to obey that first command of build my house that he gave them in in, in Haggai chapter 1. And so, what are these messages of encouragement going to look like? Well, the first that we're going to see this morning in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2 is going to be a promise of hope to a people that have already begun to be discouraged, even though they had begun to be obedient to the Lord. It's enough of an introduction. Let us read our text for this morning, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then I'll pray to the Lord for his grace to be upon us, and we will dive in. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that your peace would indeed be upon us this morning. A peace that does not come from any confidence in our own obedience to you. A peace that does not come from our ability 
from our own abilities and our own talents and our own giftings, but instead a peace that can only come from knowing that you yourself have justified us before in your sight by the blood of your Son. Father, may this good news that you save sinners be ever before our eyes. And may from that good news we be a people who are zealous for good works, who are strong in the strength that you have provided us, and who fear nothing but you. Oh, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things in your law. We pray that you would give us ears, that we would hear the words that you are speaking to us. Oh, Father, may your word be be more desirable to us this morning than gold and even much fine gold, and may it be sweeter on our tongue than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Oh God, you're, may, we cannot live by bread alone, but instead we are sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray that you would feed us and sustain us this morning as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And we said, <clears throat> amen. So our text this morning begins with another date. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, and the year is still 520 B.C., the second year of King Darius the Persian. And so in our calendar, this, this, um, this 21st day of the seventh month would be October 17th. And so this is just to keep a timeline of the dates that we've seen so far in Haggai, because I don't think that I mentioned last week's, uh, last week's date that came up. So Haggai first gave his, gave his first oracle to the people on August 29th of the same year. And then the people began to work on the temple of the Lord on September 21st. And so now he's giving to them this new message on October 17th. So those are the three dates so far. First message, August 29th. The people started working on the temple, started their obedience on September 21st, and now it's October 17th, right? So this is, these are relatively close dates to one another, right? So this has been, this has been less than a month since the people have actually started working on the house of the Lord, right? And I think that it's important before we, dive into this text properly, it's important that we would understand the significance of the seventh month, because I think that for, that for most of us, the, saying the seventh month is just a statement of fact, and it doesn't have any sort of significance to us, because we are not Jews by, by, by birth. But, understanding the significance of the seventh month to this people, and what was probably coming to their minds at this time that Haggai was giving this message is going to help us understand exactly why verse 3 seems to show that they are discouraged already in their project of rebuilding the house. So, three things to consider of of why the seventh month was significant to the people of Judah. First of all, Leviticus 23 verses verses 33 through 44, and you don't have to turn there, but you can write that down to look at it later. That passage of Leviticus details the Feast of Booths was to be celebrated in the seventh month from the 15th day of the month to the 22nd day of the month. 
And so this was an eight-day feast during which the people would sleep in booths. They would gather together. The people that lived outside of Jerusalem would flock to Jerusalem, would, pilg- would, would do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would sleep in booths as a reminder that the Israelites, their ancestors, when coming out of Egypt, didn't have homes, and, 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 and as they were wandering in the wilderness, slept in booths, slept in tents, right? And so the feast would begin on the first day with a gathering for worship, And then it would end on the eighth day with another gathering for worship. And so if the feast lasted from the 15th day to the 22nd day, and Haggai's message is coming on the 21st day, then this would mean that Haggai is speaking this message to them during the Feast of Booths, and he's doing it the second to the last day of the Feast of Booths, and the people are about to gather together on the very next day to to, to worship the Lord and to remember the Lord's former favor and faithfulness to their ancestors, right? So this is a significant day that Haggai is bringing this message to them on, right? The seventh day, second reason that the seventh month was also important is that this was also, if we remember back in Ezra chapter 3 at the beginning of our series in Haggai, um, we would remember that the seventh month was the anniversary, marked the anniversary of when the people of Judah returned from their captivity, Right? It says they returned, they, 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 they arrived in Jerusalem on the beginning of the seventh month, and they immediately started building the altar so they could make sacrifices. And the first feast, the first festival that they celebrated together was the Feast of Booths. Right? And then finally, the, seventh, the third reason that the seventh month would have been significant, would have been poignant for the people of Judah, is because. Um, the original temple that was built under Solomon's leadership was dedicated in the seventh month during, you guessed it, the Feast of Booths. And so this is a people that they're celebrating this feast. They, they're, they're, the, the whole point of the feast is to remember the Lord's former faithfulness to their ancestors. And they're remembering that, some, that about 15 years ago, they came back to their hometown from being in captivity on this very same festival, and they're beginning to work on this new temple with a remnant of their former selves, and they're remembering that it was also during this exact same feast and festival that Solomon dedicated that glorious, that beautiful, that magnificent temple some 500-ish years ago. So why is this important? Each of these factors can very easily be contributing to the discouragement that God addresses to them in verse 3. And of course, even the thought of discouragement after seeing such a swift obedience last week may at first seem strange, but as we will see, I think it's quite understandable and even quite relatable for us. So but first we have to note in verse 2 who God is speaking to. He's speaking to the same three parties that we saw from last week. He says he's speaking to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. This is, the, this is the, 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 the person who descends from the line of David, but is no longer a king, but is a governor of this territory. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who is the high priest, a descendant of Aaron, Abraham, uh, uh, Moses' brother, not Abraham's brother. And then to the remnant of the people, to the whole collective people. So there's the same three group of people. And he asks them three questions in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing 
in your eyes. So evidently, the fires of the immediate obedience that we saw last week were already beginning to wane as those who are old enough to remember before the captivity, before the Babylonians destroyed it. And they would have only been children at that time. As they were, but they were still old enough to remember the magnificence of Solomon's temple. And they began to be discouraged. Now, why? Why would they be discouraged at building this temple? If they saw the former temple in all of its glory, and they may even only only have the, child, the, the, the childlike remembrance of that former glory, right? Because these are old men now. Why would they be discouraged? Wouldn't they want to immediately start rebuilding the temple so that hopefully they could see it again with their own eyes? Well, consider this. Solomon's temple took over 180,000 men, hired men. These are not people that are working on the temple in their, in their spare time. These are hired men, seven years to build which happened during a time of peace in Israel, right? Remember, Solomon's 40-something year reign is probably the only time that Israel has been at peace in all of Israel's history. And that was while Israel was still a united kingdom at the very height of its power. And so how could this remnant, this isn't, because remember the people that are back at this point, this isn't all the people that went, and so how could this, rem- this remnant of the people ever hope to match such a glorious house for God who is, as Psalm 24 says, the king of glory? And in all honesty, I think that their discouragement is very far from being irrational. The reality of the scope and the difficulty of their work had finally set upon them. And they were beginning to believe that the former glory had passed away forever, that the best days We're long gone. Now, their discouragement should be easily relatable because we often encounter similar circumstances. Brothers and sisters, nostalgia has a powerful grip upon we who are doomed to watch helplessly as time slips through our feeble hands. Eternity is etched into our hearts and yet we're forced to watch as one generation passes and another one replaces the process just keeps repeating like a song that's stuck on loop. We all know intuitively that something is wrong, that things were made to endure, but without fail, the glory days of old always become nothing more than a memory. And still, we cherish those memories because we were there. We were active. And soon, we will no longer be. Now, all this makes sense, right? (laughs) It's understandable and it's relatable. It is all too easy to become zealous for the things of the Lord and then to become discouraged by the remembrance of former days of glory or even by the glory that we see in the lives of our ancestors of the faith. So we don't even just have to compare ourselves to our past experiences. But for instance, Paul calls us to imitate himself. But he was a towering giant of the faith. How are we supposed to imitate him? And then we see two heroes of, the, of, of church history, Athanasius and Luther. They stood, to, they stood against the world, defending the deity of Christ and justification by faith alone, respectively. And those are inspiring stories, but we're not Paul's. And we're not Luther's, even though social media would have us believe that every disagreement is a new reformation. 
But we easily romanticize our past and especially the colossal figures of old. But Ecclesiastes warns us, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Why is that so? Why is it not wise to say, why were the better days, why were the former days better than these? First of all, our memories are not always the most reliable guides. I don't know if you found that to be true. We easily remember the past glories, while many of the sufferings and failings we relegate to the footnotes. Like the passing, like we pass by quickly over Paul's stonings, beatings, and martyrdom. And we tend to just think about the massive impact that he had on Christianity. And so thus we have practical reasons for be, to be somewhat skeptical of our nostalgia. But more importantly, there's a more important reason why we should not be a people who ask why were the former days better than these. And that is because for us who are God's people, the glory of former days can never compare to the glory that is yet to come. But we'll see more on that in verses 6 through 9. Verses 4 through 5. He gives, Haggai gives a message to these people. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the, the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. In these two verses, and I'm going to attempt to be brief on them because in many ways, these verses are just an expanded in a, in, a, in a different variation of that command of them fearing the Lord and of the Lord promising, I am with you from last week, right? So what we see in these verses is we see three distinct commands and then two promises of assurance, right? So the commands are be strong, work, fear not. And the two promises of assurance are I am with you and my spirit remains in your midst. So the first command is repeated three times. That probably means that it's significant, right? When God repeats something, it means pay attention. And so once he says to Zerubbabel, be strong. Once he says to Joshua, be strong. And then to the people, be strong. This is a command that pops up throughout the scriptures if you look for it. Repeatedly, in, in, at the end of Deuteronomy and at the beginning of Joshua, it is repeatedly given to both Joshua, who is about to lead the people into the promised land, not this Joshua who Haggai is talking to here, for the people to be strong as they were preparing to enter the promised land and to conquer the peoples that were in there. And it continues to appear throughout the scriptures, even into the New Testament, where Paul told the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then he urged to the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. But this command is bound to these other two. All three of these commands, we can't take them apart from one another. All three of these commands, they're closely bound together to work and to fear not and to be strong. But the central command is to work. Right? This is the command that we've already seen 
in chapter 1, right? That God said, build my house, do this work, seek first my kingdom, put my kingdom above your own little kingdoms instead of busying yourself with your own homes. And then what did we see last week? The people did it. They worked on the house of the Lord. And now God is telling them again, work. And these other two commands, be strong and to fear not, these are the two means by which the people would actually do the work. The work of the temple, or for us today, prioritizing God's kingdom, requires strength to continue steadfastly even when, adverse, even when adversaries threaten to thwart us. Indeed, devotion to God's kingdom sets us, in many ways, against the kingdoms of the earth. And so to follow Christ, brothers and sisters, is to invite suffering and adversity. And so we must therefore be stirred by the fear of the Lord in order to be strong and to fear nothing else except God and to obey his word. And these three commands are interspersed with two promises of assurance. I'm with you and my spirit remains in your midst. Of course, both of these commands assure the people of God's presence among them, as he also said in verse 13 of chapter 1. But yet here, God promises that, that follows that command, I am with you. He follows that with another qualifier. What does he say? He says, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Now, were these the people that actually came out of Egypt? No. This is, this is at least a thousand years removed from their coming out of the land of Egypt. But God is emphasizing to them that God made a covenant with their ancestors and his covenant still stands with them today. Just as he made that covenant with them on Sinai, his covenant is still just as strong and just as unbroken with them as they they have returned back from Babylon and are working to rebuild the temple of God, right? So this is an affirmation of what we said last week, that God's presence with his people was not dependent upon their obedience, but instead his steadfast love towards them. But then from understanding, but then from such an understanding of this wondrous steadfast love of the Lord, we should also be stirred up to obedience, to work. But then the second promise of assurance that he gives, my spirit remains in your midst. And one commentator notes on this command that, the, that, that, that we could translate this is, as my spirit stands in your midst. And he notes that this is the same word in Hebrew that is used um, back in Exodus to talk about how the pillar of cloud stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting was not the tabernacle and it was not the temple, right? So this wasn't, the, this wasn't the formal place where God said that his presence would dwell in the most holy place, but it was just the, 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 the temporary tent of meeting. And yet God's presence was standing as this pillar of cloud in the midst of his people. And so God is using the same terminology, the same language here to remind them that just because the temple is not yet built doesn't mean that my presence isn't with you. I'm still standing in your midst, working with you, as you get ready to build the temple so that that will be the house for my glory upon the earth. And so they can be confident that God is indeed with them because his covenant remains with them and God is still in their midst. Verse 6. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, the temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So now that God has reiterated the command for them to work and encourage them to be strong and fear not because his spirit remained in their midst, he now pointedly addresses their concerns from verse 3. They feared that the former days, the, the, the glory of the former temple would not be surpassed by this temple. And God explicitly says the exact opposite. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So not only would the temple, would their temple match the temple of Solomon's, but the, temp, but the glory of this temple would exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. Although the people of Judah felt small, frail, and insignificant, and in many ways they were, especially when they compared themselves to the other nations or even just compared themselves to their own ancestors, the Lord still assures them that great, that greater things are still to come. God designates himself as the Lord of hosts five times in these four verses. And what does the Lord of hosts mean? It means that God is the, the captain of heaven's armies, that he is the king and the ruler of the hosts of heaven. And so this is emphasizing that God is the eternal king. And what's interesting, did you notice anything about the date at the beginning of this passage? In chapter 1, where we saw the date, in both times, at the, the first verse and in the, and in the 15th verse of chapter 1, the date says, month, the, the day, um, the, sorry, the month, and then the date, and then second year of Darius the king. But at the beginning of this chapter, all we're given is the month and the date. He leaves off the second year of Darius the king. And in fact, notice this. Look at verse 10. Look at next week's passage. Darius is mentioned only one time in, the, in chapter 2, and he's mentioned here in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius. There's no Darius the king, as he was mentioned twice in chapter 1. So why is, he, why is Darius, who, is, who calls himself the king of kings, that's one of the official titles that the Persian kings took upon themselves, the king of kings. Why was he called Darius the king twice in chapter 1, and now he's only mentioned once in chapter 2, and the one time that he's mentioned, God has dropped the title of the king from off of his name. Although Darius may call himself the king of kings, the Lord commands the host of heavens, and he rightfully declares, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. God is declaring his supremacy and his sovereignty. All the nations, even the mighty Persia, will one day be shaken before the Almighty and their treasures would be brought before him. God is the true king. And so, of course, this is a tremendous promise that he gives here. that The, the latter glory will be greater than the former. 
that all the nations will be shaken and their treasures will be brought in because the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and I will give peace. And with our 2,540 years worth of hindsight, we can rightly ask the question, was it fulfilled? Did this prophecy come to pass? And the answer is both yes and not yet. Although we have no exact specifications for this rebuilt temple, Herod the Great, about 500 years after Haggai wrote this, did greatly expand the temple larger than Solomon's temple. And in fact, Mark 13 records one of Jesus' disciples exclaiming to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so apparently the site of this, of this expanded version of the temple that Herod the Great built, apparently it was a wonder to behold. Apparently this was a marvelous sight. And so was, was this the glory? Was God prophesying about Herod the Great one day coming and, and expanding upon the temple's glory and it would be about twice the size of Solomon's temple? Is that what he means? Jesus gives us a better understanding. After Jesus had turned over the tables and driven out the money collectors in John chapter 2 from the temple, the apostle records a dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, followed by a couple of John's own comments. So this is John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Because this was a... a massive show of authority for Jesus to go and drive the people out of the temple, right? And so Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's a shock, (laughs) right? And how did they answer? The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And so this is not, and if you look at Ezra, it only takes about four years for them to build the to build the original design of the temple. So this is talking about 46 years for Herod to build those expansions and to make it this wonderful, this, this massive building, right? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John adds this, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Brothers and sisters, the temple was the place of God's presence on earth. Although we as humans are exiled from Eden, the Lord still established a physical place where his glory could be found and worshipped. And so while God's glory came to rest in the temple, he remained within the most holy place of the temple. A place that was guarded by a great curtain, That was not just to keep us out, but instead was also to protect God's people from being consumed by his presence. And this was a mighty act of grace for God to be among his people. But it was replaced by an even greater grace. As God the Son, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And as the embodied word of God, Christ is God's glory incarnate. He is greater than the temple because he fulfilled the purpose of the temple in a way that no building ever could. And yet few were able to see the greatness of Jesus' glory during his earthly ministry. 
Because he came, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant, offering his own life as a ransom for many. Although they could see, they could not see. And all that they had ears to hear, they couldn't hear. So God stood physically in their midst, but they rejected him and murdered him. And in killing Jesus, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the real temple, the true temple, the living temple that was both God and man by nailing him to the cross. By killing Jesus, they cast themselves into an exile more severe than any nation could ever bring upon them. Like Adam and Eve, they threw themselves out of paradise once again. But the cross was not forced upon Jesus. No man could take his life unless he had freely given it. And oh, brothers and sisters, he did. He offered himself as a sinless sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And in Hebrews 9, the author explains how this sacrifice, how by this sacrifice, Jesus effectively rebuilt the temple in three days. Under the old covenant, sacrifices were offered continuously. But once a year, the high priest was permitted to enter that most holy place in order to offer a sacrifice for all the people, including himself. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The temple and the sacrificial system, therefore, have been replaced by the person of Jesus Christ. So we therefore no longer offer sacrifices in a physical temple because Jesus has become for us the final sacrifice. The former glory has thus been replaced by a greater glory. And in Christ, peace has been given, as was promised in verse 9. Peace between God and man is now found through Jesus, our mediator and our high priest. And even... Peace between with our neighbor is made possible through being united into one body of Christ by his spirit. But while Jesus has certainly fulfilled these verses in some ways, there are still other ways that they are still yet to be accomplished. Hebrews 12. If you'll remember, this is the passage that we went to to end 2019. Cites verse 6 of Haggai in the context of comparing the giving of the old covenant at Mount Sinai to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And after displaying, after the author of Hebrews goes and displays the superiority in every way of the new covenant that we have in Jesus, who has offered himself once for all for us, the author of Hebrews gives this warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So when God spoke to the Israelites from Sinai, the earth shook before the Lord. But the author of Hebrews says that another shaking will soon come that will shake both the earth and the heavens. The author of Hebrews interprets this phrase yet once more from Haggai to be pointing toward what we would call the day of the Lord. When Christ returns visibly as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to consummate the coming of his kingdom for all eternity. And after Christ's appearing, the heavens and the earth will pass away being replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. And then upon that new earth will be the new Jerusalem. And in that city, John says, there will be no temple. For, this is to quote Revelation 21-22, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And furthermore, John says that all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. And that, it will contain the glory and the honor of the nations. And so that's the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai's oracle, of these verses 6 through 9 of Haggai. On that day, God will shake for eternity all the nations and take their glory for himself. On that day, the Lord will fill his house with his glory, and its glory will be greater than all former times because the dwelling place of God will be with men. On that day, God will give his peace, his eternal peace, to his people as we live forever under his loving reign with him as our king. But notice that Haggai in verse 6 says that all of this will happen in a little while. Brothers and sisters, two and a half thousand years is next to nothing in comparison to eternity. Once Haggai's words have come to pass and the earth and the heavens are shaken, We will not judge the Lord to have been slow. And instead, we will praise him for his great patience in giving so many the opportunity to repent. But until that day, what do we do? We wait. And we work while we wait. We strive forward without fear, for we are those who have already read the ending of our story. We devote ourselves to God's house, seeking first his kingdom, for we know that the best days lay before us, not behind us. And indeed, we are a people of hope, of the blessed hope, in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who brothers and sisters, are zealous for good works. So let us therefore be zealous to work for our God. And let us not be deceived into thinking that our labor is in vain, even when at times it feels like it is in vain. Let us not be deceived into seeing that our seeking God's kingdom first is as nothing in our eyes. Our God is with us, and his spirit is now within us. Not just in our midst, but within us. And in a little while, he will make all things new for we who belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, be strong, all you people. 
Fear nothing but God and work for the Lord of hosts is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your presence is with us, that by the blood of Jesus Christ that you have rescued and redeemed us to be a people for yourself who are zealous for good works. And so I pray, O Lord, that you would give us the grace to cast ourselves at your feet and to remember the gospel all over again. If there, for any, it may be the first time I pray for grace to see and behold the glories of Christ and to take by faith the free gift that you have given salvation by your Son. And especially as we go into this Lord's Supper, God, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us that while we have been justified, our fight still remains. And that we still wrestle with sin until that day when you come and you shake all things and make everything new. And so, Father, work in us. Let us not fear others. Let us not fear what others would think of us, but instead let us be strong and let us prioritize your kingdom above all else regardless of the consequences, regardless of the adversity, regardless of what may come. Let us devote ourselves to you because you have given your very son for us. We love you, O Lord. And it's in your son's name that we pray.